I hope that the uh, sermon today will not only uh, further bring uh, more enlightenment to you, church, more enlightenment to you, and more understanding of the catechism we've been going through, but also uh, to our uh, beginning study in the book of Genesis. Uh, today, church, uh, our Old Testament reading is going to come from Psalm 139, and the New Testament reading, which will be our scripture uh, sermon text for the day, is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, let me now read from the Old Testament, Psalm 139, a near and dear psalm to myself and I'm sure to many of you, and again, my encouragement, my exhortation to you is to give your undivided attention to the reading of God's most holy word. Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall still lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would look and slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from his Old Testament text. I pray, church, that after the sermon today you would return to that text and read that one more time in light of that which will be said in the sermon today that comes from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let us now read from the New Testament Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father God, it is humbling, Lord, to come before your scripture, to read it, especially in the New Testament text, Lord, that I just read. It seems to be so straightforward and so clear how... How could I even remotely draw from it, Lord? The, the, the message there is so clearly there. So I pray, Lord, that the words that I say only further uh, just bring enlightenment, Lord, just further explain, further encourage your people, Father, as we look more closely at your word. pray that you are glorified in this time. I pray that all the praises and glory are to your name and to your name alone, Father. For all things, Lord, all things are because of you. All existence is because of you. May we recognize that. May we be humbled by that, Father, as we come before you to hear and to feast upon your word on this Lord's day. It's your name we pray. Amen. Years ago, church, when I was uh, working on my undergraduate degree, I had a, a professor who would always seem to find, he was a very entertaining professor, he'd always seem to find a way in his lectures to bring up, poke fun at, or to sarcastically mention what he called, and maybe you've heard this phrase before, bumper sticker Christianity. Uh, this professor was a very godly and, and brilliant man, one that I respect um, uh, immensely. Uh, and he also shared a frustration with uh, the watering down of the Christian faith in our contemporary culture, hence his issue and, and concern and being bothered by the placing of bib- biblical snippets on one's car as a means of evangelism. I always remember so much of what he taught in his classes as he uh, definitely had a just gifted ability to bring about the truths of God's word in a very tangible, a very practical, and often a very lighthearted way. Definitely three things that I could really, really appreciate. Today, though there seems to have been a somewhat of a decline in this so-called bumper sticker Christianity, there has been an increase in a new form of pop culture Christianity, and it may go by many names, but for the sake of what I'm talking about today, I'll simply refer to it as Facebook Christianity. Now, just to be clear, church, I have a Facebook account myself, of which I semi and very semi-regularly engage with. I have also at times uh, come across a post of a theological or biblical nature and from it have been uh, highly encouraged by its contents. However, on the large scale, much of what Facebook has become, I'm sure many, uh, most, if not all of you would agree, um, in our contemporary Christian culture is just a modernized version of bumper sticker Christianity, where God's truth is often cut down into small and out of context phrases, which sound good when they are read, but ultimately lack the proper depth and context of what God's word deserves. For example, let me give you an example of this just uh, for clarification. I recently came across a Facebook post with a simple statement, quote, God's got this. And below it was a picture of a cartoon character flexing his bicep muscle and giving a very determined look, a very determined look on his face. 
And though I understood the message and what was being communicated, God is sovereign, he will take care of the situation, I could not help but wonder if the author of this post wholly and fully believed in this truth. If one were to perhaps uh, place this message into the inbox of a friend who was maybe struggling or in the middle of a crisis or maybe needed help or encouragement, I wonder how helpful uh, such a biblical meme would truly be to them in their state. Again, my point is not to necessarily discredit or speak negatively about social media as a means of spiritual communication and encouragement. Uh, As I said earlier, there's been many times I've seen things and I've been encouraged uh, by the scriptures that I see, um, but that's often because I understand the context uh, behind them. There's no doubt in my mind uh, that God uses uh, these things for much good in the Christian community. But I certainly, most certainly, have my concerns about how people attempt to use God's word within it and the things that I've seen um, and and how uh, supposedly Christians use it uh, in the context of of social media. And I'm sure that uh, you, church, would have concerns as well. For there does seem to be something deeply lacking at the theological level with such use of biblical memes, which are so prevalent in the social media world today, especially that of uh, Christianity. Many people often, unfortunately, know just enough about Scripture to quote it or to be familiar with it, to be familiar with certain passages, especially ones uh, that are more popular than others. But sadly, many do not seem to know enough of the truths of God's Word to fully apply the scriptural teachings to their lives. For when God's Word is deeply and wholly studied in context and then unreservedly applied to the life of a believer, the effects are far-reaching and life-altering. Our sermon text today is Ephesians 2, 1-10. through 10. Within it is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which is a very popular text many of you are probably familiar with. And it is my hope that as we go through and study in context Ephesians chapter 1-10, through 10, it will bring to light uh, the full and complete depth of all that is contained within this portion of scripture. For I have in fact seen this particular scripture, namely Ephesians 2.8.9, often used on uh, social media posts and, and websites. And so it is my great concern that we understand this properly in context. So church, let us now look closely at God's word in such a way that we can fully extract all of the truth of God given within. And in doing so, ensure that we do not miss all that God has for us in this scripture. Let us look now at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we do that, we're starting in chapter 2. So just very briefly, when we look back at chapter 1 of Ephesians, just for the sake of context and understanding, we see that Paul, who is the author of Ephesians, describes believers' spiritual possessions in Christ. That would be the summary of what's going on in chapter 1. Believers' spiritual possessions in Christ. Then in chapter 2, the text of which we're going to study today, Paul goes on to explain a foundational truth to the child of God, namely believers' spiritual position in Christ. So we can already understand as we go into looking specifically at Ephesians 2, the context, what Christ has done for us and what we possess now because of that. And chapter 2 is going to focus specifically on the position uh, that we have because of Christ. So what Paul does in chapter 1 is explain what God has done for his people in general, discussing all the spiritual possessions believers possess in Christ. Where in chapter 2, Paul forms and goes on to explain a broad overview of Christ's accomplishment uh, 
to give a detailed analysis of what was accomplished by Christ for the believer and, again, the position because of that that they hold um, through Christ. Therefore, the first 10 verses of chapter 2 show that the sinner who trusts in Christ for salvation not only has new possessions because of Christ, chapter 1, he actually has a completely new position before God because of Christ, chapter 2. And before going on to explain this new position that is held by believers in Christ, Paul first, in the first three verses of chapter 2, explains the state of man prior to coming to Christ. In the first three verses, he explains the state of man prior to coming to Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul gives a very direct and pointed explanation of sin's work in the life of those outside of the saving power of Christ. In these verses, Scripture gives the reader a detailed picture of the horrible spiritual condition that the unsaved person exists in. Paul lists four primary characteristics of the man that exists outside of Christ, and I'm going to walk through each one of these and explain them with some detail. The first characteristic that we see in verse 1 of the unsaved person is that the unbeliever is ultimately spiritually dead. The unbeliever is ultimately spiritually dead. That is, he is blind, he is deaf, he is mute, he is unresponsive to the things of God. He has no appetite for the things of Christ. In fact, it is just the opposite. He despises God and has a complete distaste for all spiritual things. And in his dead state, he moves only further and further into a state of decay till the time one day will come for him to stand before the righteous judge and to enter into the state of eternal death. For, church, this is the state that all men are in outside of the illuminating ability of the Holy Spirit and the saving power of Christ. This is where we all are outside of the saving ability of Christ and the illuminating ability of the Holy Spirit. And what is the cause and the reasons behind this mentioned spiritual death that man exists in? Why would man be in such a state? Well, They are the trespasses and sins, as Paul says, against God that the unbeliever, by their very nature, commits. He says this in the very first verse of chapter 2. For as Romans 6.23 would also come into support, the wages of sin is death. It's important to note here that the condition of the unbeliever church outside of Christ is not a state of being sick, being ill, being broken, or being injured as if he has some sort of moderate ailment that just requires some sort of a cure. No, according to Scripture, the unsaved man is dead, both spiritually and eventually physically. And dead people, church, do not need cures. They need life. The unsaved man does not need a cure for an ailment. He needs a complete resurrection from his state of death so that he can partake in the complete resurrection of life. A sick person may be able to care for himself in hopes of nursing himself back to health, but as for the dead man, there is no hope. He is dead. Only if life is first brought back into his body and soul is there any hope for him. And this, this is the state of all of those outside of Christ. All lost sinners are spiritually dead. They exist in a state of spiritual death and decay only to await the grave 
when their body will physically die and their souls will be righteously condemned. Moving on, the second characteristic that we see uh, in verses 2 and 3 of uh, the first few verses of chapter 2 is that the unbeliever is, in his spiritually dead state, naturally disobedient to the things of God. The unbeliever is naturally disobedient to the things of God. Genesis 2.17, God clearly stated that if man eats of the fruit of the garden, of the garden surely he would die. And as we all know, man and woman both acted in disobedience to the commands of God, bringing upon themselves and all of mankind a state of separation from God. For one of the primary characteristics of sin is its ability to lure an individual into believing the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And just as Satan assured man in the garden that ye shall not surely die, and Adam and Eve believed in this lie, so too are the lies of the enemy unreservedly at work in the minds and the hearts of unbelievers today. Thus, the first man and woman sinned and experienced immediate spiritual death and ultimately physical death. And this condition of death has been passed down generation after generation ever since, spreading to all of mankind throughout all of the ages, for this is the reason for the condition of which all men and women exist outside of Christ. And although this effect of sin specifically places unbelievers into a state of spiritual death, all of us are in this state outside of Christ, but when one is not a believer, they are in this state of spiritual death. Sin's effects continue to spill over throughout the workings of this world, Satan, and unbelievers, onto the people of God, even after their hearts are awakened to life. For as we look around, it's very obvious, church, that this world is in a rather depraved state. For how much beauty exists in it, the depravity is easily seen by the awakened heart and mind. For even now, the world and world systems constantly put pressure on the people of God, trying to get them to conform to its ways, Romans 12.2. The people of God are in a place of already saved in Christ, but yet not fully. The people of God have been raised to life by Christ, but yet not completely. For Christ has redeemed, but not totally. We like to label this and and call this the already, but not yet. For we, church, have been rescued from sin's grip, but the world around us has not. But we have been called heavenly in Christ, to be seated with Christ and to live in light of the things of Christ. For Christ himself, as he said with his very words, was not of this world, John 8, 23 and 17, 14. And neither are we, his people, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But the unsaved person, whether consciously or unconsciously, is wholly controlled by the values and attitudes of this world and the sinful nature that commands it. For when man fell into sin in the garden, they forfeited it to the one who rules it now, handing it over to the one that we call Satan. As the exegetical Bible commentary says, for Satan is the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, 
Satan is able to influence the lives of unbelievers and also seeks to influence believers. He wants to make people, quote-unquote, children of disobedience, as he himself was disobedient to God and wants others to do the same. But Satan, again, is not the only force at work in the unbeliever's disobedience. Satan, in addition to the world, there is also one more uh, additional force that is at work, and that is what Scripture labels as the flesh. As Paul states in verse 3, that when one is not obedient to Christ, they are, by their very nature, slaves to their own flesh. But by, quote, the flesh, Paul does not mean the physical body of man, for the body in itself is not sinful. The flesh, therefore, refers to the fallen state that we were all born into after mankind fell into sin in the garden. It is the nature that wants to control the body and the mind and to make us disobedient to the things of God. For a sinner will behave like a sinner because they have the nature of a sinner. It is no wonder then, church, why the world acts the way that it does. Are you surprised when you look upon the secular world and the actions and the behaviors that they engage in? I'm often, church, more surprised when I talk to believers who are surprised. And it becomes very interesting when I hear other believers Um, living in such awe that people would act in such a way, surely they must not know or they have forgotten the state of which the unbeliever lives in. For Scripture tells us that we should not be surprised by this. We should not be surprised. We may be appalled by the actions of the depraved. We most certainly are. But we most certainly should not be surprised. They are doing only what they should do by the very nature, as we all should do outside of Christ. For the unsaved man is controlled by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil, the three great enemies of God. And man in his dead and disobedient state is completely unable to change his own nature to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. He must, he must have outside help, a help that can only come from God alone. This leads to our third characteristic that Paul addresses uh, specifically in verse 3, that the unbeliever in his state of, of death and disobedience is completely depraved. The unbeliever is completely depraved. The believer is in death. The, believer, the unbeliever is in disobedience. The unbeliever is completely depraved. The lost sinner lives a life only to please the desires of the flesh and the wishes of the mind. The unsaved man's actions must be sinful because by his very nature, his very desires are sinful. It is essential one's theology of man and of sin and of God that he understand that man in his depraved state is completely spiritually dead, incapable of doing anything good within himself. Therefore, if any good does come from an unsaved man, there are only two options in explaining such an event according to Scripture. One, it was out of the common grace of God that our Father decided to work good through the heart of the depraved for His sovereign will. It was God doing it. Or two, the action or event only appeared to be good, when in all actuality it was for sinful and selfish reasons of whatever the action was. Either it was for God's good out of His sovereign will, or the reality is it was actually sinful, only appearing 
to look good. Because, church, in this world, there are people who do, have done, and will seemingly do good works that are outside of the saving grace of God. We all must acknowledge that. But such good works must always be seen in the overarching grace of God. For when one honestly, properly, and biblically reflects on man's state outside of Christ, the effects of sin are so far-reaching that one must conclude that sinful mankind does not even have the ability to do good left unto themselves. For this is the state of total depravity, and why anything good that exists is from and because God alone. As James tells us in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Thus, the fourth and final characteristic that we see uh, specifically in verse 3, reflecting on verses 1 through 3, is that the unbeliever in a state of death, disobedience, and depravity is ultimately doomed under the righteous requirements of God. The unbeliever in his state of death, disobedience, and depravity is ultimately doomed under the righteous requirements of God. Because the unsaved man is dead, disobedient, and depraved, it is for these reasons that man has no hope before God and is utterly, utterly doomed. When one is outside of Christ in their dead and totally depraved state, they both willingly and unwillingly reject the things of God. This is why, church, to simply tell an unbeliever that they are a sinner, that they need Jesus, is like telling someone with a terminal illness who only has days left to live that they show symptoms of a cold and that they should go see a doctor. The gravity of the situation simply is not communicated. For the unbeliever is blind to the serious extent of their condition. They are simply not able to see it. And they need the help of those who do see it to help them to see it. Unfortunately, I think this is one of the main reasons why so many take the doctrine of election so lightly or offensively. Because they do not fully and completely understand the biblical teaching on man's horrible and depraved state when outside of Christ. For to think that man has some ability to do some good is false doctrine. There was nothing good in any of us, and it was God and God alone who is the one who brings us unto salvation. For if one diligently, openly, critically, and humbly studies the scriptures on the, tom- on the topic of human depravity, the ultimate conclusion must be that man is simply too evil, too depraved, too defiant, and too dead in his sinful state to even remotely choose anything of the things of God. It is God and God alone who saves souls and no others. Amen. Church, I want to encourage you that if you have questions or confusions about the doctrine of election, please meet with one of the pastors here at Emmaus, myself, with Joe, with uh, any of the counselors, with, with Austin or Kathy. I know both of them would love to meet with all of you. We would love to help you and give some insight on this beautiful and sometimes misunderstood biblical doctrine But the reality is, and we must stay faithful to it, that what the pages of Scripture teach is that salvation is an action of God and God alone. And it is this point that brings us to a transitioning in Paul's teaching in Ephesians as he begins in verse 4 to explain the effects of sins. Um, 
uh, as he transitions from the effects of sins uh, to the actions now of God. It is a very abrupt transition. Three to four makes a very uh, distinct transition as Paul goes from a state of just complete helplessness and hopelessness to a very interesting phrase as he opens up in the verse, uh, verse four of chapter two. For Paul says at the beginning of verse four, the simple yet very profound phrase, but God, but God. Verses one through three lay out this horrible condition of which mankind is in, and how does verse 4 start? But God. For where the end of verse 3 leaves the reader hopeless, helpless, without remedy, Paul begins the next verse by saying, But God, in his loving and sovereign will, declared at the beginning of time that he would act on behalf of the sins of his people, and may all glory and honor and praise be to God because of that. This is amazing, church. This is profound. When we were lost, when we were blind, when we were dead, when we were without hope, what does our great God do? He does what only he and he alone could do. He acts to provide a solution to reconcile his people back to himself. And according to verse 4, what was the reason and the purpose for God's actions? For it says, It is because of God's great love through which he loved us. Verse 4. It is because of God's great love through which he loved us. And out of this great love comes his great mercy as he acted to make a way back to himself. Church, the love of God is a concept that reaches far beyond the grasp of mankind's understanding. Yet... As we do come to know it and God reveals it to us in the way that only our depraved human minds can, we slowly come through the process of salvation and sanctification to know the God of the universe. Ever so slowly do we come to understand the depths and the riches of God's love for us. If you have yet to have a time in your walk with Christ in which you are just absolutely mesmerized and captivated by the extent of God's love for you in Christ, then I highly suggest you take time even today to reflect upon this truth. For the love of God is the crux point of all of Scripture. As God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son to die for those who would be saved through Christ. And when this love as Paul displays in verse 4, is transmitted to sinners. It becomes grace and it becomes mercy. For God is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4. And God is rich in grace, Ephesians 2.7. And these riches make it possible for sinners to be saved. For all of this is made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was at Calvary that God displayed his hatred for sin and his overwhelming love for sinners. Next, in verse 5, directly after telling of God's great love and mercy for his people, what does Paul then explain to the reader? What Paul explains is that though we were dead, though we were depraved, we were lost and without hope, we were enemies of God at our very core, that God, by his love, that God, by his love and grace, made us alive with Christ. Now, in this phrase, with Christ, is one that I was stuck on for a little bit because there's a few ways of interpreting it. And I was looking around and and referencing some um, other opinions and perspectives. 
for there's a couple ways it can be interpreted. It could, one, be interpreted as Christ alone. It was with Christ. Christ was the one who did it. With Christ, he came in. He was the one who saved us. This is theologically sound. That is not an incorrect teaching. But I don't know if that's necessarily what Ephesians 2.5 is saying. It could be interpreted as it was through Christ. That the, what Christ did, he was a means or a, a, an opening or, or a channel of which God accomplished the task of giving us new life. Which also is rather theologically sound and could be, um, uh, it could be supported through other scriptures um, uh, throughout the Bible. But although both of these statements were true, and as I stated, could be biblically supported, I ultimately concluded that what this phrase specifically meant was uh, one of position, that we were saved by God and were made spiritually alive so that we are now in a place with, positionally, Christ. For look at verse 6, as Paul further explains. He tells us that God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is, again, so just amazingly profound, church, that we have been brought back to life, that we exist in a spiritual realm where we are seated with Christ, the already, yet we are here on earth awaiting our final resurrection, the final consummation of all things as uh, we, we go through this sinful state. One foot is in, one foot is out. But in the spiritual state, church, we are with Christ. We have come to a place where we are seated in the heavenlies, as, as, as part of God's reign and rule over this creation. Because when we come to accept Christ by faith and become a child of God, we are not at that time being raised from the dead. Uh, death still is something that mars our human condition. That will not happen until Christ returns for the second time. But because of Christ's accomplishment, God has made us alive in the spiritual realm as we have been exalted with him, and we are even now sharing in the glories and the benefits of his throne in the heavenlies. For our current physical position may be here on earth, but our spiritual position is in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this was made abundantly clear, and I could easily reference many areas back in our study in the book of Revelation, but for time's sake, I will not. But um, if you were to go back and listen to that entire series, which would take you a very long time, it would bring this uh, to much more light, this very concept. Next, in verses 7 through 9, as we continue looking at, at Ephesians 1 through 10, we see that God's purpose in our redemption was not simply to rescue us from hell, as great of a work that in itself is. God had a much bigger purpose in what he was doing. And this is where my concern comes with people when they look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. They forget that the con there's a conclusion of the matter. For God's ultimate purpose in our salvation is that for all eternity, the church might glorify God. Ephesians 1, 6, 12, and 14. And if God has an eternal purpose for us to fulfill, he will keep us in him for all eternity. For our plans that, that God has laid out before us are ones with eternal ramifications. Since we have not been saved by our own good works, it was not your doing, we cannot lose it by our bad works. This is the danger of a confusion of the doctrine of election, as if it was something you could do, it's something you could undo. I would never want that pressure on myself. I would be seeking much counsel if I thought every single morning I was only a choice away from walking away from that which I had nothing to do in the election and illumination of my heart, per se. Uh, I did respond to it, for those of you who know thoroughly the doctrine of election, but it was God and God alone who illuminates the heart. Church, your salvation 
is a for sure thing. It, it is something that is um, there for eternity. As grace means salvation completely apart from any merit or works on our part. Or else it is not grace. There is something that you have done. Anything that we do takes away from the theological teaching of grace. Our salvation is the gift of God, and it is kept for all eternity. Rest confidently in that. And though it was God who saved us from the depths of our depraved state, according to Ephesians 2.10, our salvation in Christ is just the beginning. Hence, again, my concern where people stop at Ephesians 2.8.9, verse 10 has some very profound teachings which we will look at. In verse 10, Paul tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. The word workmanship in verse 10 comes from the Greek, uh, Greek word poema, which is what we derive our English word poem. It means that which was made, implying an intentional and creative maker. For God is the author, church, and we, we are his poem. And as we look at the book of Genesis over the next few weeks and study God's creation of the world, keep in mind, keep in mind that it was also at that time when God was setting the foundations of the world that he was also creating plans for your very life in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, God has called us to a, a much uh, more eternal purpose of good works. For God has pre-planned poetic works to be carried out by his people in order to bring about his good and perfect will. This is where things get really exciting in studying the scripture text, as if they hadn't already been. This is where it goes up another notch, if you can say that, right? The next biblical truth is just so foundational to all the verses prior in chapter 2 that the believer in Christ must not miss what is being taught in Ephesians 1 through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Because like so many other popular texts, many often unread this portion, missing the so what that follows in verse 10. For you, brother or sister, in Christ, were elected unto God in eternity past through the foreordained saving power of Christ, and this election of your soul is the very beginning, only the very beginning of your salvation. And to carry out the good works that God has prepared for you in advance to walk in, which God had declared, which God had uh, determined, even at the foundations of the world. Your life, Christian, is the living testimony of God himself. And what you do with your life is first and foremost to carry out which God has prepared for you beforehand in Christ. Your life, church, is ultimately about living and carrying out the will of God. Did Christ not choose you at the beginning of time? Did Christ not bring you into his fold through his grace alone and at the time that God had foreordained? Did God then not prepare works for you to carry out through your life in order to bring glory to God? Your life, church, ultimately is all about the glory of God. It's not about your job. It's not about your socioeconomic status. It's not about your accomplishments. Your life at its very core is about glorifying God by walking in the good works that he has prepared for you in advance to walk in. Far too many Christians think that conversion is the only important experience and that nothing follows. This is one of the downfalls of modern and contemporary Christianity with the focus on just trying to get people saved. It doesn't do much good if you create a room full of lots of babies. They're not going to be able to survive and care for one another. 
It is wrong to take such an approach. And to have a church or ministry whose focus is just on the salvation of souls only severely handicaps the Christian's walk and disregards, according to verse 10 in Ephesians 2 and many others, the plans of God for the life of a believer. Where there is salvation, there must be sanctification as we all walk in the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. For the same resurrection power that saved you and plucked you from sin's grip can also daily help you to live for Christ and to become mature in God so that you might glorify him with your life now and throughout all eternity. Again, salvation is always followed by sanctification for the good works of God. And when one is saved in Christ, they are saved to do the good works that God prepared in advance for them. This is why it's so important to regularly be engaging in the means of grace with God laid out for us all to partake in. Our life, church, is not our own. We must care for that which God entrusted to us, which is our very own lives. We belong to Christ. He is our bridegroom. And the life that we live, no matter what we do with our life, no matter where we go, no matter what we accomplish, should always be lived fully, completely, and only to God, to follow in and to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us to do. When we work, and, and when we uh, work to become specifically more mature in Christ, uh, we do this to the glory of God. We do this to the furtherance and to, the, um, uh, to, to uh, communicating and, and to walking in those things which God has done uh, and prepared for us in advance. It is so important that we are on board with that church, that we would be able to glorify God with our very lives. But when we struggle with spiritual maturity, it is a hindrance to this process. From the same way that Moses, Joseph, David, the Apostle Paul, they were all chosen by God to carry out God's will and the plans for his people. We too, church, were specifically chosen before the foundation of the earth to play a part in bringing about the will and the purpose of God. As we read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, there's, it's just so packed full of such theological truths. It was hard for me to bring it to a conclusion, to bring application to it. It feels like uh, I could have went on and on with, with so much, but Joe only gave me uh, one time to preach, so uh, I, had to, I had to fit it all in. But if there is anything, church, there are, there are three um, applications I would like to, to leave you with from, from this teaching out of Scripture. There's three applications I'd like to briefly leave with you. The first application, church, is this. Never forget that which you have been saved from. Never, ever, ever forget that which you have been saved from, the depths of depravity that God rescued your heart and your soul from. We must always remember where it is that we came from, what it was we were saved from. We were hopeless in our state outside of Christ. Our hearts were wicked. Our hearts were evil. Our hearts were at war with God. There was nothing in us that was good or deserving of God's grace. If there's anyone in here that is not a believer today, if you hear something and it sounds like it's making sense, that is God working on the illumination of your heart and my prayers that you would respond to it, that you would talk to someone about that, for it is only through God and God alone that we're, we are awakened through spiritual things. But for those of us in Christ, 
we must remember our state outside of Christ. We must remember the difficulty, the struggle that it was. For some of us, um, more of our adulthood maybe was lived that way, and it's more clear, but uh, rest assured that all of our state outside of Christ is one of being completely and totally and utterly depraved. Second, second application, church, out of remembering our, our place, is that it was God and God alone who saved you. It was God and God alone that saved you. Be humbled by this. Rest confidently in this. For it was God and God alone who was able to redeem you through Christ. For us to take any credit or part for that which God alone accomplished is to rob God of the glory due his name. If you responded to the call that was on your heart, it's because God gave you that ability. If you had a call on your heart, it's because God gave you that ability. If you have a life now in which you live and you live to Christ, it's because of God sustaining it. The fact that I'm able to stand up here and even speak words and to take breaths from the air is because God alone has allowed it and ordained it. It is very important, church, that even if we know this doctrine, that we remember it, lest we become, uh, lest we become prideful and arrogant in, in our walk before Christ. Lastly, last point of application, church, is this. God saved you to do good works. God didn't save you to get the goodies that come along with the benefits of Christ. There's work to be done. There's things to do before you, and that is to carry out the will of God by living honorably, by living holy. Scripture has much to teach on the will of God for you, and I highly encourage you to spend time reflecting and learning on those teachings, for there's way much more to cover than time would allow even now. You are God's perfect gift. You are God's specific creation. God had planned your existence before the beginning of time, referencing back even to Psalm 139. As God laid the foundation in Genesis 1, your soul was already part of his plans. Be assured and confirmed in this truth, church, for it is a profound truth when you think about it in just the totality of God's plan for all of mankind. God's end goal in your salvation, church, was not just your redemption, God is doing something much bigger than just you and I. God is bringing about his will in Christ through his church. It is by his people that he's doing it. Therefore, serve God with your life, for it is not your own. It is not your own. I do not know, brother or sister, exactly what it is that the Lord and Savior has called you to do in this life. What trial is before you? what accomplishments you may achieve, what tribulations you may walk through, what task you must complete, what mission you must go to accomplish. What I do know, and I know for certain, is that the good works that you will do in your life for Christ were prepared even before the foundation of this world. So walk faithfully and confidently as you abide in the power of Christ and carry out the good works of God. Let's pray. Father God, may all honor, glory, and power be due to your name and your name alone. May we read your scripture with humility. May we come to understand you, Father. May we accept the teachings of scripture that are maybe difficult, Father. I know that the doctrine of election is one that is difficult, Father. It takes away such control. It takes away any ability that we have. We become nothing, Lord. But in us becoming nothing, Father, you become everything. Help us to reflect and accept even those doctrines that are difficult, Father. Because when we do, we are left in a state of just awe and amazement. And your holiness, Lord, 
And what does that cause us to do but to do none others, to praise your most holy name, Father? I pray for everybody in here, Father, that you would give them the wisdom, Lord, of what they need, and the encouragement and the strength and the power to walk forward and the wisdom uh, that, that you grant them, Father, to complete and to accomplish those good works. May all of us, Father, walk in those good works that you have called us to in Christ Jesus. It's your name. Amen.